This episode contains discussions of graphic body horror, suicide, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. There is nothing supernatural or inevitable about your pain. You shouldn't have to live with ghosts. The following is from The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Can death part us? I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back to be near my love, and you, you, if you died before me, the cold earth would not hold you from me. If you loved me, you would return, and again these fair arms would be clasped round my neck as they are now. But she told him, with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shone in his, she told him that the dead who die at peace with God are happy in heaven and cannot return to the troubled earth, and that it is only the suicide the lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, whose unholy spirit haunts the footsteps of the living. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own, unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today's story is The Cold Embrace, written by 19th century English author Mary Elizabeth Braddon. I will be telling this story from the point of view of Franz Gunther, a narcissistic young German artist. All the world is a playground for the dashing Franz. The artist falls in love just as quickly and thoroughly as he falls out of it. This pattern suits Franz well, until a broken promise returns to haunt him. Coming up, a doomed engagement. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I studied my darling Gertrude as she sat before my canvas. Sunlight spilled through the drawing room's arched windows, its beams bent toward her as if unable to resist her loveliness. Despite my immense talent, capturing her exact ethereal beauty in a portrait was impossible. So I decided to paint her as my heart saw her, a celestial being flying through the heavens. I dabbed my brush against a cerulean blue as vivid as her eyes and began to paint the sky. Gertrude was more than just my love. For most of my life, she was also my family. I was orphaned as a child, and while the deaths of my parents were undoubtedly the greatest tragedy I'd experienced, growing up with Gertrude was the greatest blessing. Her father, Wilhelm, my dear papa's best friend, had raised me as his own. He'd even insisted I call him uncle. However, as Gertrude and I grew, so did our feelings for one another. Until it was undeniable, we were meant to be together. But despite Uncle Wilhelm's great affection for me, Gertrude and I agreed to keep our love affair a secret. My uncle had always been clear that anything untoward between us would result in my indefinite expulsion from Gertrude's life. As if conjured by my thoughts, Uncle Wilhelm appeared behind me. Ah, beautiful, my boy. We're lucky to have an artist in the family. Gertrude, this portrait will make a fine gift for your husband someday though I'm sure he will be wealthy enough to afford the greatest portraitist of our time. His veiled condescension made my face burn. I told myself he was simply envious of my talent, yet my hand still angrily plunged my paintbrush into a water dish, turning it a sickly grey colour. Thankfully, Gertrude rose to my defence. Franz will be the greatest portraitist of our time, father. You'll see. My heart soared. How effortlessly she dispelled his sting. What a gift to love one that admired my talent without envy. I knew at that moment I had to marry her. At sunset, I took Gertrude to the most stunning place in Brunswick, the Oka River Bridge. The twilight was dreamy, and blue flowers bloomed on the river's banks. In the midst of this beauty, I knelt and offered Gertrude a ring. It was my mother's engagement ring, and my only family heirloom. Its band was a Euroboros, a mold of a snake eating its tail. It symbolized eternity. And that is just what I asked her for. My question hung in the air, and I felt an unbidden flicker of doubt. I had no worries about Gertrude's devotion, but if she was concerned about Uncle Wilhelm rejecting our engagement, I feared even my charm could not persuade her otherwise. But as I watched her lovely face break into a smile, I knew I wasn't to worry. 
she sweetly said yes, and I pulled her into a kiss. I shivered with excitement as she tenderly stroked the back of my neck. Her petite frame pressed into mine, and her arms fell to encircle my chest. I told her an eternity together meant even death could not separate us. I would return from the grave for her, and surely she would return to wrap me in her exquisite embrace. But Gertrude looked troubled. She responded, But surely death would separate us, love. Souls who are called home to heaven are at peace. It is only poor, lost souls who end their own lives that are shut out of heaven. They haunt the living. I held her close and assured her that, in that case, we would have an eternity together in heaven. But sadly, our time together in Brunswick was cut short. It was only weeks later that news of my considerable talent reached Florence. I was commissioned to replicate works of great artists like Raphael, Titian, and Guido. I would miss Gertrude terribly, but the opportunity was too lucrative to pass up. So I left, swearing to a tearful Gertrude that I'd write every day. And I did, at first. But what delights Florence held for a young man abroad for the first time. Trattorias sat on every corner. Museums boasted famous works of art. My world expanded before my eyes. Soon, I'd honed my craft as a painter. My pockets were lined with money and everywhere I looked were the most stunning women I'd ever seen. Before long, I entertained a steady stream of gorgeous models, all of whom I loved just as deeply as I had loved Gertrude. None of these girls was more special than the last, including Gertrude. I couldn't believe I'd promised my entire future, my eternity, to one girl when a whole world of women was out there for the taking. Because, as I'd come to realize, the only truly extraordinary person I'd ever known was me. I could forgive my previous naivete, but I was tormented with regret over giving Gertrude my mother's ring. I desperately wanted it back. As I drafted and discarded dozens of letters to this effect, a letter from Gertrude arrived. She wrote, Dearest Franz, Father has found a wealthy but awful man that he deems a suitable groom for me. I am beside myself and miss you terribly. Please, won't you come home? I left her plea unanswered. But soon I was bombarded with a slew of increasingly frantic letters, each more imploring than the last. I began to dread their arrival. The messages were lengthy, yet said little of note. My time was precious, so I began scanning their contents to see if there was information pertinent to me. And finally, there was. She wrote, Dearest Franz, the wedding date has been set, June 15th. I beg of you, come back to me now and fulfill your promise. I cannot live with this man. As I read, I felt a soft tingle rush down my spine, almost as though I was being caressed. I shook the feeling off to focus on the only part of the message that mattered. June 15th. I began to form a plan. 
I would return to Brunswick under the guise of wishing Gertrude well on her wedding day. That way, I could finally get my mother's ring back without having to formally rescind the engagement. Emboldened by my plot, I excitedly prepared for the journey. But then, another letter arrived. Gertrude wrote, Dearest Franz, I have not heard from you, so I can only imagine you are dead. I will soon join you, my love. An eternity in purgatory with you is better than a lifetime with the hideous man I've been promised to. Yours forever, Gertrude. My bedroom door slammed shut as an icy gust ripped through the room. I whipped around, puzzled over where the breeze had come from. My windows were closed tightly. I shivered, but Gertrude's words pulled my attention more strongly than the draft. Their implication was unsettling. Then again, my allure was potent. In all likelihood, Gertrude would never forget me but she would certainly resign to her fate when her wedding date arrived. And as long as she returned my mother's ring, all would be right with the world. The long-anticipated 15th of June arrived, but my return to Brunswick felt strange. And as I made my way to the church, I noticed the people and businesses seemed smaller than I'd remembered. It was hard to believe a gentleman of my skill and refinement had come from such humble beginnings. I realized for the first time I was looking at my childhood home through the eyes of a man. I was almost at the cathedral when I realized that I'd forgotten a wedding gift. I racked my mind for a quick remedy. The ochre bridge where I'd proposed was only a short detour. I could sketch it for Gertrude. Surely she would appreciate the sentiment and be impressed by how much I'd grown as an artist. I arrived at the ridge and admired the riverbank's blue cornflowers. They were in bloom, just as they'd been when I proposed to Gertrude almost a year ago. But while the setting was identical, I felt like a completely different man. I took out my sketch pad and brush to drink in the scenery. But as I ready to create, I noticed something on the bank. A pile of white, sodden fabric. I peered closer and saw a pale hand laid limply among the flowers. I gasped. It was a dead body. I was horrified by the unexpected atrocity among such beauty, but my repulsion eased quickly. I'd never seen a corpse before, and as an artist, one should never be above a new life experience. I carefully approached the riverbank when I was gripped with cold terror. It was Gertrude. I stood, rooted in place, unable to tear my gaze away. Her once delicate form was bloated and graying. Blood pooled, blackening her flesh where it met the ground. And her face, her once lovely face, was mottled and peeling. Water trickled from her parted blue lips. I looked away and wretched. She'd carried out the threats she made in her letter after all. I tried to catch my breath, to compose myself, but my heartbeat hammered in my ears. My vision blurred, then sharpened. That's when I saw it. 
my mother's Euroboros ring still encircled Gertrude's finger. I acted without thinking. Swallowing my revulsion, my hands lifted Gertrude's stiff arm and moved to slip the ring from her finger. But it wouldn't budge. Her hand was too swollen. I strained, twisted, and pulled to no avail. After one particularly strenuous yank, the ring slid from her finger and her leaden arm fell to the mud. I stared at Gertrude's vacant eyes and felt a pang of pity. So I gently touched her hand and whispered my goodbye. But as I turned to leave, I froze. A shimmering silhouette loomed on the bridge above. Its phantom form sharpened and faded like a warm breath in winter. I stepped closer and my blood ran cold. It was a ghostly Gertrude. And as she stared down at me accusingly, I knew she wasn't done with me. Coming up, Franz is crushed by his mistakes. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now... Back to the story. I'd begun June 15th with a spring in my step, thinking all of my problems were about to disappear. I departed Florence to attend Gertrude's wedding and retrieve my mother's beloved ring. But I was not watching Gertrude marry another man like I'd intended. Instead, I stood beside her corpse, frozen in fear while her phantom image leered at me from the bridge above. I shut my eyes tight, willing the image away. When I opened them, Gertrude's apparition had vanished. Then I ran. I did not know why I'd seen this vision, but I did know I needed to put as much distance between me and that bridge as I could. I reached the train station and boarded the next stagecoach without even asking its destination. I didn't care where we were going, as long as it was away. I was utterly shaken. Did I hallucinate Gertrude on the bridge? How could she have taken her own life? And was I partially to blame? As soon as the thought entered my head, I pushed it away. What nonsense! I had done nothing wrong! Gertrude made the choice to end her life, not me. Truly, I was no worse off today than I'd been yesterday. I still had my good looks, money in my pocket, and talent in spades. 
if I were a callous man, I might have even thought I was better off with Gertrude dead. To my credit, I abandoned this line of thought. But, all the same, I couldn't deny its truth. After careful consideration, I decided I was going to move forward with my life and put this ghastly ordeal behind me. My decision immediately eased the knot in my chest, and suddenly I became aware of my surroundings. A pretty girl sat across from me, the perfect diversion from my brooding thoughts. I asked her where we were headed. She laughed, amused I'd taken such a long journey without knowing my destination. I was hoping you'd show me around, I told her. The knot in my chest eased further. Already, I felt like myself again. The girl's name was Liesel, and we were going to Cologne. I soon learned that Liesel was not only a fantastic tour guide, but an outstanding model and muse. The following days were a blur of painting and lovemaking. One evening, Liesel went out for her favorite dessert, Streuselkuchen, and I had the apartment to myself. I decided to take advantage of the time to get some painting done. I was deeply engrossed in a portrait of Liesel until I felt her cold hand stroke the back of my neck. I jumped at the touch, accidentally smearing the paint on her mouth. It looked like she was screaming. I turned, barely concealing my frustration. Liesel, you know better than to... Then I stopped mid-sentence as I realized I was completely alone. I suddenly felt a pair of cold, wet arms wrap around my chest. I was momentarily stunned into stillness, but as the arms squeezed tighter, I flew into a panic. Their grip was impossibly strong. I struggled in surprise. Then I mustered all of my strength to wrest myself from my invisible attacker. I grabbed at the stony hands clutching my shoulders and prized each finger away one by one. That's when I felt it. The distinct ring I knew so well. The snake eating its own tail, wrapped around my assailant's finger. At that moment I knew, however impossible it was, that Gertrude was in the room with me, crushing the life from me with her frigid embrace. I was losing consciousness when I heard the door open. Gertrude's grip immediately released and I crumpled to the ground, gasping for air. Liesel entered and, seeing me, dropped the streusel cooking to run to my aid. How could I explain what had happened? She'd think I was insane. All I could manage was, please, don't leave me alone. In the days after the incident, I woke each morning in fear of Gertrude's spirit. I recall that her horrid embrace ended as soon as Liesel returned. Therefore, I reasoned that I needed to be in someone else's presence to avoid her torment. So, I refused to let Liesel out of my sight. Before long, my neediness became too much for her. She threw me out, despite my pleas, and suddenly... I was alone. I couldn't fathom the man I'd become. I'd always ended my romances, not the other way around. But I had bigger concerns to occupy myself. 
like where I would stay. Fortunately, I found a boarding house that slept four to a room. I moved in, reasoning I would always be with others. And I was, for a while. Until one night, I was pulled from a deep sleep by a wintry caress on the back of my neck. The inviting touch gently coaxed me awake. But when I opened my eyes, I saw the bed beside me was empty. And so was the room. My boarding mates were nowhere to be seen. That's when the jilted spectre swiftly wrapped her invisible arms around my chest. I thrashed like a frantic animal as Gertrude's grip moved to my throat. As my ghostly aggressor tried to crush the life from me, I staggered out of bed and ran into the street, desperate to be in the company of another person. I stumbled across the cobblestone. Gertrude's arms throttled my lungs so violently that I could barely conjure enough volume to scream. Hearing my hoarse wail, several neighbors stepped out of their homes. Gertrude released me, and I fell to my knees, gulping in great breaths of air. I heard one of the onlookers murmur that I was a lunatic. Heads shook as, one by one, they retreated back inside. My panic rose as the street emptied. I screamed, No! 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 Come back! Please! Someone! Stay with me! I, I have money! Not a single person answered. I was frantic to be with someone, anyone. So I ran through the dark streets, desperately shouting for company. By morning, everyone in Cologne thought I was a madman. But for once, public opinion was the least of my concerns. I could feel Gertrude lurking around every corner, waiting in every shadow. She was set on stealing my last breath, so I decided to go where I would never be alone. Paris. I tried to hire a stagecoach, but each of the rainsmen I encountered had heard of my nighttime wanderings. I was a liability. None of them wanted the burden of transporting me. But finally, after hours of begging, I found a man who agreed to take me, but at an exorbitant price. I gave him nearly all of my money without hesitation and set off toward my salvation. By the time I reached Paris, I was delirious with hunger, thirst, exhaustion, but perhaps most of all, I was filled with excitement. Gertrude's ghostly grip would never find me here, not with a million souls around to expel her hold. I was certain that in Paris, my health, virility, and artistry would return. I would finally regain the fame and glory I'd known in Florence. I had just enough money remaining from my arduous journey for a proper suit and a ticket to the Paris Opera House. I'd have to forego a week of food for the luxury, but the evening's grandeur would nourish my soul far more. The moment I stepped inside, the ballroom's opulence took my breath away. The high arched ceilings and gilded decor made me want to weep with happiness. Everywhere I was surrounded by people, but not just anyone, refined company. Heads turned as I gaily strode through the grand hall, 
it was certainly a relief Gertrude hadn't robbed me of my looks. I was so euphoric to be there, I hardly noticed my poor balance. My legs were quite fatigued from my journey. Before I knew it, I tripped over my own feet and ripped an elderly woman's gown on my tumble to the floor. However, I recovered quite smoothly and soon joined a group of gentlemen. They were snickering about a drunken college student stumbling about. I laughed along until I realized their smear was directed at me. Preposterous, I thought, but I could not say so. My throat was parched from days without a drink. But that was no matter, for I had much more important distractions to attend to. By God, I had never seen so many beautiful women in one place. Before I knew it, one of them grabbed my arm and pulled me to the dance floor. At first, I struggled to match her grace. But soon, we moved together as if we were waltzing on air. Her flowing gown mesmerized me as we twirled and twirled. The evening was so magical, I thought it would never end. The hours flew by, and other patrons trickled out without my noticing. Even when my partner left, I couldn't stop dancing. I was surprised to find myself alone in the middle of the Grand Opera House, but I was not afraid. Surely this place was too fortified by beauty to permit wickedness. But then, a cold finger slid along the nape of my neck. Gertrude had found me. Her marble arms enveloped me, and I felt a rush of fear. But despite my terror, I had no resistance left. If I was not safe in this exquisite sanctuary, I wouldn't be safe anywhere. And so, we danced. One final, deadly waltz. I felt her petite frame press into mine, soaking wet against my chest. Her cold arms slid around my back and tightened. I reached a hand behind me to touch my mother's ring one last time. An agonizing pain shot through me as my ribs cracked under Gertrude's otherworldly strength. My legs gave out and her weight toppled us both to the ground. At last, she had me completely. I gazed heavenward, feeling my heart beat for the final time. The last worldly thing my eyes saw was the ceiling's grand oil painting. I was struck by its similarity to the portrait I painted of Gertrude so long ago. On it were dazzling, celestial beings flying away from the light and in to the darkness. Mary Elizabeth Braddon is perhaps best known for her so-called sensation novels, stories that took on bold, audacious themes that were not otherwise welcome in polite Victorian society. Subjects like murder, adultery, or, as in The Cold Embrace, suicide. 
These were all fodder for Braddon's novels, and her work was often accused of being lowbrow and subversive. Braddon herself was no stranger to taboo. She spent over a decade in a common-law marriage with a married publisher named John Maxwell. Braddon and Maxwell had six children together, while Maxwell was still legally married to his first wife, Mary Ann. It wasn't until 14 years later after Mary Ann's death that Braddon and Maxwell finally married. The broken vows and delayed promises in Mary Elizabeth Braddon's life can perhaps also be seen in the cold embrace. Universally, an engagement ring is a symbol of love's promise, and Braddon builds upon this idea with a ring shaped like a Euroborus or a snake eating its own tail, a symbol of eternity. But when Franz gives Gertrude the ring only to callously cast her aside, Braddon dares to hold him accountable in the form of Gertrude's suffocating arms. Gertrude's titular cold embrace represents the unprocessed guilt Franz carries with him after her suicide. As long as Franz is with someone else, he is distracted from his transgressions. As long as he is distracted, he is safe from having to take responsibility for his actions. But as Franz learns, there is no escape from moral responsibility. Ignoring it will only make it grow stronger until it crushes you in its embrace. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Janelle Marlock, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Audrian Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. What happens when Mr. Right turns out to be Mr. So Wrong? Find out on Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify.